Thank you for joining us in our Luke series, the most important story ever told. Good morning. So glad that you're here on this Mother's Day. All right, my mom is here. I know, right? She loves me. Somebody has to. Thanks. Thanks, Chad. I love it. Um, So this morning, we're going to continue in Luke. And just before we get going, um, as I prayed and said, Lord, how do you want me to present this? What do you want me to pull from this? I was pressed on something that I think is important for us to remember as we come here together and study the Word. We live in a culture that loves knowledge. We love it. We love to have facts about things. Anything you can think of, you can find people who are so nerdy about that thing, they will tell you stuff you've never heard before, and you can go deep, and it can kill millions of hours on YouTube. Right? I'm going to take that huh as an amen, actually. Okay? I was thinking about myself. Right now, I'm reading a book. I'm having a book read to me. That's what I call listening to something on Audible. Um, and this, this book on Audible is really tough. It's about like longevity and health and it breaks down all this stuff at a cellular level. And honestly, I get confused a lot. So I call Cody who's playing guitar back here. He's very smart. He's a PA and he explains all this, all this stuff. And so I'm taking in these things. I'm taking in like just managing my household, what's going on with my family. I'm taking in current events. I'm listening to podcasts. I'm also doing a whole bunch of musical study because I'm super nerdy about that. So I'm getting in, into all that. And, I, and the Lord says, what do you think your capacity is to really take in all this stuff? There's got to be a limit to where some stuff is just so in the top of my brain, I can go, oh, I heard this once and pass on this knowledge, but it never makes it to like part of my lifestyle or something that I would die for. So if you take this longevity book, I can recite a whole bunch of reasons why you should do things or tell you how your body works or why you might be prone to this because somebody told me about it. But if I don't apply it to my life, I'm missing something. (laughs) And I'm not applying it yet, but soon. (laughs) So this is my prayer for you. That today we would move the most important things as we've gone through the book of Luke. And we are studying the life of Jesus from the beginning of his life to now we're in the depths of his ministry that you would allow your heart to saturate in his affection for you, that you would know him better when you leave here today and it wouldn't just be in your mind. Because we'd love to tell people all the things we know, but God wants you to know him and not just be able to rattle off some facts or some strategy to deal with the pain in your life, but instead... Know that he is the one that comforts you. So as we dive in, allow God, pray that the Lord would reveal himself to you. Because he knows right where you are way better than I do. He knows you better than you know yourself. If you long for him to reveal himself to you through what we read or something that's said, or maybe you look across the room and you see somebody and it sparks something in your mind, be open to God communicating something to you because the Holy Spirit is in this room. 
in doing something. That includes me. I'm open to throwing out all of these pages of work because what he has to say is more important. So let's pray. Father, God, I'm just so thankful to know you, to stand here, God, and, and, and know that, that you love me, God, and God, I confess that I need to know it more. I, I know the places where I can waver, Father, where, where um, I even have questions, God. And, and Lord, I just, I just pray you deepen my affection for you, God, and that every person in this room would be willing to have you stretch them today. And so, God, we give you permission. We say, have your way here because you're not going to force yourself on us, God. It's, it's very rare, Lord. But you love to be chosen. We love, you love, God, the heart that says, God, I choose you. I want to pay attention to you. So come, have your way. We give it to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. So we've been going through Luke, and it's a journey. We've been in here for a while. Right? And at this point in Luke 8, we have seen a lot of Jesus' ministry taking place. He has shown us that he is sovereign over sickness as he heals the centurion's servant. He's shown us he's sovereign over death as he raises a widow's son out of the casket. And he's shown us that he's sovereign over sin as he forgives the woman who's washing his feet. He says, your sins are forgiven. He has mercy on her. He shows us his sovereignty. That was in chapter 7. Now in chapter 8, we see Jesus say, hey, I'm sovereign over nature. As he calms the storm we talked about last week. Right? And then he shows us he is sovereign over the supernatural as he restores the demon-possessed man. And so after all of these things, he travels back across the sea. And there's a crowd that waits for him. Let me tell you a quick story. Lisa and I, in 2010, we took a trip to Kenya. Um, we were chaperoning, sort of, a group of college students. Um, they still need a little chaperoning. Um, and uh, Lisa and I, Kenya is a very like special place to us. She used to work for a organization called uh, Project 82 Kenya, and they did orphan sponsorship. They do orphan sponsorship in Kenya, and so we had both been a few times and. We loved it. But this is the only time we went together. And we had to come back about three days early um, than the rest of the group. And it was me and her and this one college student who also had to be back. And so we take this like six-hour taxi ride from wherever we are in the wilderness to Nairobi. Honestly, it was a little scary. No speed limits. Occasional speed bumps. It's wacky, wacky experience. They were sleeping in the back. It was just me and this guy. I'm like, hey. It was awkward. We made it home. On our way home, we have an eight-hour layover in London. And our, the girl who's with us, her name's Whitney, she says, hey, I, used to do st I studied abroad in London. I could show you around. We have eight hours. Let's go look. I was like, okay, cool. Unexpected. Let's go check it out. So we get off the plane. We get in the tube, which is what they call subway. Not the sandwich restaurant, but the underground train. We get in the, the tube, and we go, and 
Um, she says, okay, we're going to get out over here, but then we're, but we can't go that way anymore. The train's under construction or whatever. And we said, you got to go back. And so we go back and she said, all right, we're just going to go this way. And we run into another roadblock that you can't go any farther. And then we run into another roadblock and we keep jumping trains and jumping around. And now I've been in London for two hours and I haven't seen the sky. <laughs> just going, I just hear the lady go, mind the gap, right? Which is what they say you when you walk on so you don't fall in. Um, so it's wild. We're like, all right, I got eight hours, but maybe we just need to go back because you can't like international flights, you got to be there early, right? You can't, I'm, I'm running out of time. What are we going to see? Finally, we make it up onto the street and we're walking around. I'm not really seeing anything. It's like shops. And I mean, it looks like any movie you've ever seen in London. And we look over to the side and there's all these people gathered, like a huge crowd of people um, on both sides of the street. And we're like, let's go over there. <laughs> let's just go see what they're doing. So we walk over, literally have no idea what's happening. We just stand in the group because they're there. And we're just kind of looking around. We're like, I don't know what we're looking at. Nothing's happening. And then Whitney says, you know what? I think today might be the queen's birthday. And I went, okay, that would be kind of cool. And then I look down and everybody's holding these like little cards. They almost look like invitations, but I don't know what they are. I guess just describing what you're about to see. And right about then, this parade starts. And military comes down and these horses that are awkwardly walking at like a 45-degree angle. They're like 45 degrees. We're walking forward. I don't know why they do that. It doesn't seem efficient, but it's probably really hard to train a horse to do that. I would just guess. So it was impressive. You see all this stuff. Then you see carriages come by with the entire royal family in their own carriage. I see Queen Elizabeth. I see Prince Charles, now King Charles. I see Prince William. I see that other prince who doesn't like us to talk about him. He doesn't want any attention. <laughs> so we're going to leave that alone. So I went from going, I ain't going to see nothing, to the royal family. I was like, hey, I really benefited from just showing up to this crowd for no reason except for they were right there. And it was kind of cool. Do I care about the royal family? Not all that much. But I got to go home and say, guess who I saw in London? <laughs> I'm not saying we're friends, but I'm just kidding. So this crowd awaits Jesus as he returns. And so before we go further, I'm going to ask you today, why are you here in this crowd? Why would you show up today? Now, hey, that's an interesting reason on a Mother's Day, isn't it? My mom asked me to. She said that's all she wanted because she cares about the most important thing in her baby's life. Please come to church with me. In the church world, there are three very crowded Sundays. Mother's Day is the third. I don't know what brought you here. It might not be that. But what I can tell you for certain is Jesus is seeking you out in this moment if you allow him to. And he won't force himself upon you. That's very rare in scripture. But he gives you the opportunity to choose to be attentive to him. And you could leave here with hope today. An unexpected gift for walking in the crowd. So come with me. Op give him opportunity. 
to speak to you. It says in verse 40 of Luke 8, And as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue. And he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. Okay? So there's no confusion. This guy and his job at the synagogue is basically to put together the service. Here's what we're reading. Here's what's going to happen. I put the order together. He's kind of an important guy. All right? He's coming to Jesus, who is not popular with the synagogue. So he's taking some risk here. This would be considered not the right thing to do or possibly scandalous. Where are you going? But the man is desperate as his only daughter is in the last days, the last moments of her life, and he needs him to come. And although it doesn't say here, we know that Jesus basically agrees, and they start moving, and this crowd is pressing in on them, and it's hard to move. I don't know if you've ever been in a crowd like that, but it's kind of wild, trying to move through a whole bunch of people. And while they're moving towards this house, it says in verse, verse 43, And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him, Jesus, and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, Who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. There's so much inside of this. We're going to try to give it to you because it's really hard. It's a lot. You got to know culturally that because of this disease, because this, she, of her ailment, she would be considered unclean. She wouldn't be able to do things in her society, all, especially all the religious stuff. And anybody she touched would also be considered unclean. You see, Luke was a doctor. And so you take note when he says, hey, she went to all the doctors and they couldn't do anything about it. In the book of Mark, it says that when he tells this story that she gave, spent all her money on this. All of it. She's broke and sick and is desperate and can't be healed. But she thinks, if I can just find a way there. Now, I don't know what it looks like when someone you know and view as unclean is trying to get through this group and you're all crowded in there. I don't know if they separate. I, I, don't, I don't know. But I know she makes it and she touches the hem of his garment and is immediately healed. And I think there's multiple things here, okay? He didn't get pickpocketed of a power here. He didn't unwillingly go, go, oh, dang it, somebody took my power again. <laughs> That's not what happened, okay? 
He knew this woman. He knew everything about her. If this was true, everybody who's pressing up against him would be like, my teeth are straight. Yes. Right? He's just curing everybody. But Jesus performs these miracles with purpose. And when he says, who touched me? Hear me out. This pauses the crowd. And he searches for this woman, especially in Mark. It makes this very clear. And he looks at her eye to eye and says, now somebody touched me. I felt power leave me, looks at her right in the eyes like every parent has done to a kid who thinks they got away with something. (laughs) Look at him close and gently and say, who did that? She was like, oh, dang, busted. And he says, my daughter, your faith has made you clean. It's made you clean again in the society. It has healed you and made you well. He does this in front of these people who have outcasted this woman. And you can do, when you read that passage, you can feel, you can read it like, wait a second, who touched me? But I think Jesus was going, I need these people to see what's about to happen because this is going to change the town in some ways. As I go, they know now, this person who I viewed as an outsider can now re-enter the way she should be. So it's not just that healing. It's also her re-entry into society. And the cloak has a significance. Um, a cloak or, or a robe that someone would wear would be symbolic of that owner's authority and identity. And we see this in 1 Samuel when David has an opportunity to kill Saul in the cave. We're not going to get into all of that. But instead he cuts the corner off of his robe to like disgrace him. And then he's disgraced with himself because he says, God put him in this position. He said it would have been the equivalent to knocking off his crown. He said, but God appointed him there. How could I have done that? So there was something in her that she knew that that's significant. I shouldn't touch him, but if I can just touch that, I can be healed. The power was not in the cloak. It was in Jesus himself who recognized the faith in her Charles Spurgeon says this, it is not every contact with Christ that saves men. It is the arousing of yourself to come near to him, the determinant, the personal, resolute, believing touch of Jesus Christ, which saved. Who touched me? He knew. And he calls her daughter. You know, this is the only person recorded in scripture that Jesus calls daughter. What does that mean? I can tell you this as a father who sits down there, looks at his, dang it. <laughs> Watches his daughter worship up here. The way a father looks at his daughter is something different. You are mine. You belong to me. You can trust me. I'm going to do everything I can do to protect you from the things that will harm you. I'm going to give you the life that you really deserve and I, because you're mine. And so with those same eyes to this outcast, he says, hey, daughter, I give you this title. Would you step into it? 
I cry a lot more the older I get. Isn't that weird? <laughs> Jesus continually gives dignity to women in a society where they were seen as less than. We saw that with the prostitute washing his feet with her hair. We see it continually over and over again. He would give them dignity, let them rise up and really understand his affection for her. And moms in this room, all you women, especially moms, I know that sometimes you get totally overwhelmed and you worry, am I doing the right things raising my kids? And I'm consumed with those thoughts. Like this is way above me. I don't, I don't, I'm unsure. And, and I get overseen or overlooked for all the stuff that I'm doing and I feel undervalued. And I start caring about how other people are looking at me. And do they think I'm a good mom? Do they think that I'm a, I'm a good wife? Do they think that I'm a good Christian? We get consumed with those thoughts. And some of you need to close your eyes and picture Jesus looking you dead in the eye and say, Daughter, I love you. You're mine. You can trust me. You can find comfort in me. Find your rest in me. Be confident in my love. And when some of you start spiraling down a trail and speaking worthless thoughts to yourself, understand this, that you're believing lies and you're speaking bad about Jesus' beloved God cares deeply for every single one in this room. Allow yourself to rest in his love. Verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well. Don't trouble the teacher. Don't trouble the master. The situation that we thought was doable for Jesus has just gone beyond what he can do. I got, I got limits to the faith that I've been extending. We're done. It's time to mourn. Come over here. I feel like Jesus looked at this situation and just kind of like said, give me the ball. Give it to me. I'm going to show you really what I can do in this situation. He says, think about these words. Hey, hey, don't trouble the teacher. Don't trouble the master. How many of you have things going on in your life that you don't think are big enough to bring to the Lord? Or are too big to bring to the Lord? Or are too joyful? Or is, is this too great? Like you're just like, well, it's fine. So I don't really need to bring him in, in this. He takes care of all the bad things. And so by the time something bad enough approaches, you don't even know him. 
Because you haven't sat in front of him and rejoiced and pleaded and just got to know who he is. Instead, I approach a stranger and say, please come fix this thing. But he's saying, no, I want to do this with you. It's okay. Trouble the master. Because it's no trouble. And Jesus also says to him, hey, do not fear, only believe. Consider that statement for a second. What he says is, your fear is a belief killer. But belief is a fear killer. As I come to know who he is and believe in him, I begin to move out of that fear, trusting that he knows the best and that he is walking with me. They come to this house where Jairus' daughter lays. It says in verse 52, Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her. But he said, Stop weeping, for she has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. These were professional grievers that were common in the culture. They would come when someone died and just wail for you. It's an interesting job. But they had seen death a lot. So they look at him like he's crazy, right? They go from mourning to immediately laughing, which shows you how genuine they're grieving. Right? They didn't go, hey, get out. You're making this hard for the family. They just laughed at him. He, however, took her hand and called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately, and he gave orders for something to be given her to eat. Her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. There's a couple of things in there that fascinate me. Jesus is not confined by the rules of the world. His law is above the law of the world. And so and he shows us right here, your faith was limited. And we come out of this. Can you just for a second on this Mother's Day, imagine this mom's day emotionally. I mean, you got to wake up and know this could be the last day. And you're nervous, petrified that you're going to lose this. And he's running out. Your husband's going to find Jesus. And so you're not even sure what you believe in all of that. But maybe there's a glimmer of hope. And then she dies. You see her take what you believe to be her last breath. And your heart breaks over her. She's your only child. And then Jesus walks in and raises her back to life. I don't, since they were amazed, which to me is a plethora of emotions, right? You got to be a little scared, right? Hoping it's not like a pet cemetery situation. <laughs> you don't know. This is out of the box for you. You haven't seen anything like this. So you are probably scared, want to be joyful, but you can't believe it's true. And Jesus gives her a very interesting task. He says, you know what you've done for the last 12 years? You've taken care of this girl. You've fed her and washed her. You know what? Let's feed her right now. I don't know if death makes you hungry. 
But what I do know is this mom needed to move into her role as motherhood quickly because she was standing there going, oh my gosh, what just happened? And Jesus needed to go, hey, things are back to normal. And I did this. So mom, you fed this girl, you've taken care of her. Step back into that role. I read a story like this and I go, who was this miracle for? Weird. Maybe you never thought about that, but I thought about it immediately. Who is the miracle for? It's not for that little girl. I'll prove it to you with this story. Let's for a second pretend I'm Eddie Money and I got two tickets to paradise. <laughs> and I give them to you, to Bora Bora, we'll say, okay? And I got you an over-the-water bungalow with a glass floor in sections so you can watch the fish below you. And you got a jacuzzi in the back. And you got a butler who just knocks on the door and says, what do you need? And he takes care of you. And you walk out there. You put your clothes away. You go sit on that lounge chair. You look up at that beautiful mountain that's coming down into that crystal blue sea. And you're like, it doesn't get better than this. And then, bam, you're back at work at your desk. Well, what she experienced was thousands of times better than Bora Bora. He said, hey, welcome back. It couldn't have been for her. Now, you could say it was for the parents. And I don't think you're entirely wrong. You could make that argument. But here's what I know from studying miracles. Jesus performs miracles biblically for two reasons. One is so that the lost will believe. In other words, to grow the kingdom. You talk about three years of ministry to change the world. That's not a lot of time. And the second reason he performs miracles is to show you that he is who he says he is. He's fulfilling prophecy. And people knew the Old Testament that would say these are the things the Messiah will be able to do. And he was fulfilling it. In Acts 2, after the resurrection, Peter says this. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. You know he was God. He showed you he was. So when I think of these two goals in mind, of why Jesus performs these miracles, I can't help but contrast these two miracles that are entangled in the same story. One, a 12-year-old girl. The other, sick for 12 years. One, a dad, 12 years of joy and pride and love, now deathly afraid. The other, 12 years of sickness and shame that seemed endless. One, this leader in the church. One, this outcast at the bottom. If I want to change a culture, going to the bottom and to the top is not a bad strategy. 
to affect the whole culture as they see this girl at the very bottom and right in front of them go, holy cow. And then they took this guy who privately has this amazing experience and he goes, this guy is God. And he has the power to move people because of his position. See, Jesus is not here to treat the symptoms of our sin-filled world, but he is here to bring the cure. And so he's not going to go around and cure everything and give you a perfect world because God already tried that with us. He gave us that perfect world and we squandered it because we wanted to be like him. And it's interesting when he says, don't, hey, don't go tell everybody about this. If that doesn't confuse you a little bit, I don't think you're paying attention. <laughs> That's so weird. If, if I'm doing this so that the lost will believe, why don't I want you to go tell everybody? Have you ever had a relationship that you felt like, this person only calls me when they need something? My kid only calls me when his cell phone bill is due. Does anybody want to be loved that way? I'm going to go fix all these things for you, so therefore you will love me is not his goal. He's trying to show you that when he goes up on that cross, he is the one man worthy of it to cure our sin problem. I want you to consider these lyrics from a blues song from 1923 written by Jimmy Cox. But made famous to me by Eric Clapton on Eric Clapton Unplugged, one of my top five favorite records of all time. Um, That's just more about me than it is with the rest of this stuff. But right, This addresses this love that we get experienced by only what we can give, but in a secular manner, right? This is, once I lived the life of a millionaire, spent all my money, I didn't have a care, I carried my friends out for a good time, buying liquor, champagne, and wine. When I began to fall so low, I didn't have a friend and no place to go. So if I get my hand on a dollar again, I'm going to hold on to it till them eagles grin. Nobody knows you when you're down and out. In my pocket, not one penny. And my friends, I haven't any. We've all known that sort of love that was conditional, transactional on what we could give. And this is a trap we can fall into so easy with the Lord. We can make it transactional. God, you should fix this situation because I've been in church every Sunday, even on Mother's Day when mom asked me to go. I've done all these things for you, so you should do this. And I understand it's easy to get there. I've been there. I can promise you this. You don't want your relationship with God to be transactional. The grace narrative is far better. Which he offers to you right now. He offers it to you right now. And see, the thing about these miracles 
It seems like this started belief for a lot of people. As they saw these things, they went, maybe he is God, and he started moving forward. In John 2, chapters 20, or verse 23 through 25, Jesus says, I'm sorry, it states, Jesus performed miracles and wonders, and many came to believe. And the next verse, 24, says, but he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. That's a scary one. As I dig into that, you realize that entrust really means it's like the same thing as belief. Like he didn't, they believed in him, but he didn't quite believe in them yet. And why would that be? Some people are there for the show. This, I mean, I believe he's the Messiah. This was great. I saw some crazy things. But let's look at a history of the people experiencing miracles of God. If I'm an Israelite and the Red Sea splits and I walk through it and my enemies are crushed by this water, what do I do a few years later when I'm tired of eating manna? Let's make another God. And the disciples, how many miracles did they witness? Three of them are in the room as he raises this girl from the dead. They were seeing this over and over. They were watching bread and fish be multiplied. They're watching all of this. And what do they do as soon as Jesus is crucified? They go back to being fishermen. How quickly we forget. No wonder the Jewish tradition has so many techniques for making you remember how God has come through for you. Remember. I want you to grow. but So there's something to be said about I can't be in this for the miracles I see on this earth. God doesn't want to be loved that way, but if you're hanging on to those miracles, and that's what you're searching for, you're going to miss the biggest one. The greatest miracle that every single person in here can receive right now is that God walk his feet through the same mud your feet walk through. And hung on that cross so that you could know freedom. So you could know life everlasting. And if that doesn't feel like a miracle, I ain't saying it right. Of all the things he could do, sacrificed himself on the thing that we messed up in the first place. And we have an American Christian culture that is pretty obsessed with miracles right now. Thousands of worship songs right now are coming out talking about miracles. We sang one. Now, Teresa and I go through all these lyrics, and we think that's a biblically correct song. We're okay with singing that. But why are we so obsessed with miracles? I think it's because we're pretty comfortable, and if God could fix the last remaining couple of things, that would be pretty good for us. And we miss him in the process. I want to cling to him for who he is, not what he can just give me. And he's reaching out to you today. He, in this room, right now, if you are available, if you make your heart available and your mind available, because he really wants to engage both, you can know him. You can know freedom. And at the same time, I know that you got, there's people in this room, just, there's got to be many people who are begging for a miracle from the Lord right now. And absolutely trouble the master with it. 
But don't miss the miracle of a relationship with the creator of the universe because you're just obsessed with why he doesn't fix this one thing. Lean into him. Today as we pray, as we worship, as we take communion, ask God to stir in you. Where am I missing it? God, if the disciples could follow you for those three years and immediately turn away from you and not really get it until Pentecost, God, I'm, I'm probably missing a lot. And maybe I haven't been challenged enough to know what I'm missing. But if you could show me those things, if you could search me and find any unclean thing inside of me, God, I want to honor you and I want to know you better because ultimately I know I can trust you.